So if you'll remember with me, a couple weeks ago, or just last week, we were in Acts chapter 22, and Paul uh, had finally made it to Jerusalem. Paul had been on several missionary journeys, and this was kind of coming down to the end of his road. He kind of knew that, because every time he went to another city on his missionary journey, he was actually um, confronted by someone who was filled with the Holy Spirit that would say, basically, hey, don't go to Jerusalem because their chains and trials await you. You're going to be possibly put in jail. And so he was being warned along the way, like we would be warned if we go up over Tip Top, and there's this big sign, kind of like on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, where all of a sudden there's this big curvy sign that says, danger ahead. It doesn't mean don't go down this road. It means be prepared. This road's going to be kind of crazy. And so Paul's seeing this as a warning sign. He's not seeing it as a stop sign, but as a warning sign because he believes that it's God's will for him to go and preach the gospel to all nations, to go to the Gentiles. And what better way to reach the nation of the Gentiles than to go to the very place of their central government, which is there in Rome, Italy. And so the way that he's going to get there, he doesn't know, but he knows that it's God's will that he end up in Rome. So, Paul last week arrives in Jerusalem. He's got this big bag of money. He's going to uh, basically be able to bless the church in Jerusalem. They're on hard times. He's gathered this offering from all the churches in Asia and Achaia and Macedonia, which is Greece. And as he's getting ready and he's come back, he's got this bag of money. And the Jews say, hey, basically, um, James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, says, um, we love what you're doing, and God's growing the church. Uh, many Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, but we're afraid that you're kind of uh, getting rid of your Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, traditions. You're not following the law anymore. You're telling people they don't have to follow the law. So to prove that you're Jewish enough, we want you to come, and we want you to pay for the vows of these four men. And on top of that, we want you to yourself be purified and, and take a vow and pay for the offerings to be made. Now, this is fine and all, except Paul had been teaching all these people in different nations that you don't have to make sacrifices. You don't have to submit yourself to the law to be saved anymore. You can be saved by faith in the Son of God who paid for your sins on the cross. You don't have to submit yourself to the law. And so Paul did it because he had a love for the Jews. He did it for love's sake, not because he had to. But at the same time, we need to be careful because sometimes love blinds us to the point where we'll do things and send off a message that we don't really mean to send off. And so Paul's kind of in the midst of this, and there are those who debate that Paul shouldn't have done this at all, made this offering, and there are some who debate that he definitely should have. I don't know where I stand on it, but I know that Paul did it, and as a result, while he's in the temple making this offering... There's a group of Jews that have been following all over the place to find him and to see him stumble in some way. And while they see him in the temple, they see another man who knows Paul and they know that Paul knows him. His name is Trophimus and he's in the temple and he's a Gentile and he's in the court of the Jews. It was unlawful for him to be there. And so they make an assumption, which I will remind you is the lowest form of communication. They make an assumption that Paul has brought this man in to where he's not supposed to be. And so because of that, they start a riot, and they start beating Paul right there in the middle of the temple. 
Now, they could have escorted him out, but they don't. They, they, they drag him and they start beating him. Well, there's Roman guards that see all this going on and they come in and they say, hey, you need to stop this. And they start questioning, what, what's this big riot about? And as they're questioning, Paul says, hey, will you let me speak to them? And so Paul gets up there by the permission of this Roman garrison, this, this leader, and he starts giving his testimony about how Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. He humbled him. He shined his light so brightly on, on Paul that he couldn't help but repent of his sin and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? I've obviously been blinded to the fact that I'm actually against you. I'm not serving God. I'm against God. And so Jesus meets him. He tells him what he must do. He sends him to another place. And Paul just gives his testimony. This is what God did for me. This is how God changed my life. I was once a persecutor of the church. I was once just as zealous as you Jews were. But now, now God wants to do something different. He's humbled me and he's taught me that I need to be proclaiming the love of Jesus Christ, the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, they listened to Paul all the way through his testimony until he said that God has sent me to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. And then they start throwing another riot and they, because of their riot, are so violent towards Paul, they're throwing such a fit that the Roman guards actually take Paul and they drag him to their barracks to confine him because otherwise they, he might be torn limb from limb. They're that incensed. They're that upset with Paul. So because of that, Paul finds himself now in prison, basically. He's been tied up and he's in prison. And because of the confusion, the Roman guard is still trying to figure out what in the world Paul had said to them. Because remember, when he spoke to the Jews, he did it in Hebrew. And so he's still trying to figure out, why are they so mad at this guy? It's one guy. What could he have possibly said to upset this whole crowd? And so he's still investigating into it. And while he's investigating into it, he says, hey, why don't we just, uh, why don't we examine him? And in Roman terms, that means why don't we scourge him until he tells us what in the world he said to them? Because he won't tell us. So to examine him means that he's going to take the cat of nine tails, kind of like they did with Jesus, and whip him with it until he basically can't take it anymore and tells him what's really going on. So Saul being a little bit, or Paul being a little bit wiser than I probably would have been, he said, hey, um, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen? Now, he doesn't say anything until this point because this scourging, we oftentimes think of it as kind of just like a beating, but a scourging would oftentimes not only clear them because they fess up to what they had done, but it, just the scourging alone would kill most prisoners. So the fact that Jesus, when he was on the, the way to the cross, was not able to carry his cross, it's because the scourging was so severe that most people would die under it. So Jesus, when he's not able to carry his cross, he's still a pretty manly guy. You know, he's still pretty stinking strong. He had his face set towards getting to Calvary to die on the cross. But Paul says, hey, um, is it lawful for you to scourge me? He calls upon his Roman right. He's grasping for straws. And I don't know that I wouldn't have done the same thing. And so the man says, well, wait a minute. Uh, I, 
you say you're a citizen, I bought my citizenship. In other words, anybody can be a citizen these days if they just pay enough money. And Paul says, no, I didn't buy my citizenship. I was born here. I was a born citizen. He goes, and they all back off. And all of a sudden they deal with Paul completely different. So Paul is still, they still want to know what's going on with Paul, what he has said. And so in order to do that, they're going to bring in the Sanhedrin, which was the great high council over Jerusalem, over, Jude over Israel. And they were the ones that would question things of religious matter. They were kind of like a, a big council. So when they call them together, Paul recognizes that this Sanhedrin is made up of two groups, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees were kind of like what we would consider the conservatives of Judaism. They were the ones that would be the right to the right to the right. You know, they'd be, if there was a tea party in Jerusalem, that's what they would be. And then there was the other side, they were the Sadducees, and they were the more liberal. Um, they were the ones, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in anything of the spiritual, it was all about the physical. And so they were Jews, but they didn't believe in some of the more mystic teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. And so they were divided on things. They didn't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees. That's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. I don't know. It's somebody's joke I always use, and of course it gets old, but, and it's kind of corny, but you know, they were kind of a sad group. I mean, can you imagine to be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection? Well, then we only have hope in this life only. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually writes, he said, if in this life only we have hope in Jesus Christ, then we are of, of all the most pitiable. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he's just like every other religious leader. He's dead and he's in his tomb. But we have eyewitness accounts that he not only wasn't in the tomb anymore, but over up to 500 people saw him after he rose from the dead. And so he's got this group, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, and he's going to use this very fact to divide them, to deflect away from the fact that they're trying to try him. But they believe, these Roman garrison, the, the soldier, he believes that, hey, look, if I can get them to question him and to put him under scrutiny, perhaps he'll give himself away during this trial. As they try him, we'll find out what he has said to them, and then we'll be able to give him charges or let him go. And so verse 30 of chapter 22 says, The next day, because he wanted to know for certain, this is that Roman leader, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So he's, he said, hey, why don't you guys come together? Why don't you try this man, you know, kind of examine him and we'll just listen. So verse 1 of verse, uh, chapter 23 says, Then Paul, he looked earnestly at the council, and he said, Men and brethren, he's still addressing them respectfully. He says to them, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, he commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him quickly, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you now command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, 
that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul starts to address this crowd, this, this council, respectfully. He says, men and brethren. And then he explains to them, he says, I have been in, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now what's the big deal with him saying that? Why does the high priest order him to be slapped? Well, because Paul was not following the law. He was not doing what they saw as a righteous person should be doing. He wasn't doing sacrifices. He was going and talking to Gentiles all the time. He was doing all these things that in Judaism, they had kind of leveled that kind of person to someone that was not righteous at all, that couldn't possibly have a clean conscience. And so when Paul says this, it sounds very um, highfalutin. sounds very prideful. So the high priest has him slapped. Now, so Paul responds, he re, what I would call, and reacted. Have you ever reacted to something? There's a difference between reacting and responding. A reaction is when somebody mouths you and you punch them in the mouth without even thinking about it. A response is where you reason what's just happened and you respond to them. Now, you can still be kind of straight with them, but it means it's a thought-out response. So Paul here has reacted. He's been slapped by this high priest who he knows is on the outside very clean, but inwardly knows nothing about righteousness. As a matter of fact, Ananias was kind of like a mercenary. He was um, a leader religiously, but in his actions, he was only doing what was expedient in order for him to get financial gain. And we know that sometimes this happens. He's more of a politician than a religious leader. Now, there are religious leaders, and we all know them, and we could probably list some, but we won't go there. We know that there's religious leaders that are out there for financial gain. They don't care about anybody. There were wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, that's who this man was. He was, uh, outwardly, he was supposed to be the most... <laughs> holy man in Israel. He was supposed to be an example to his people. Uh, if How the leader goes is usually how the people that follow him go. But he wasn't. And so Paul responds to him. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, what, what's a whitewashed wall? I think of Tom Sawyer. He would have to whitewash the fence or the wall. But what it's talking about is in those days, there would be people that would come from distant lands and they would travel afoot or they would travel on the back of an animal and they would come to Jerusalem for the feast to worship God. And in order to worship God, they had to be ceremonially clean. But along the road, along the way, outside of the city gates, there were many uh, cemeteries. There were places where bodies were buried. And because dead men's bones were there, if you accidentally walked through a cemetery, you would have traveled all this distance from a distant land, spending all this money and time and effort, and you wouldn't be able to go and worship in the temple because you had been defiled by going through a cemetery. That's what the law taught. So what they would do to deal with this is they would take whitewash and they would paint the walls that were around the cemetery so you wouldn't wander in. They didn't have street lights. And they would also paint the tombs themselves bright white. So even in the darkness of night, you would see them from a distance. And not only that, but it would look nice during the day. It wouldn't look dank and dreary, but it would be a place of, 
you know, you could go and see, you know, the headstones of your relatives and you could, it wouldn't be so dark and kind of dreary. So they would, that's why they would paint those walls. But the reality is, is no matter how much you paint a cemetery, on the outside it's clean and it's bright and it's beautiful, but on the inside, what's, what is there? There's dead men and women's bones. There, there's still tombs. There's still places of death. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, <coughs> verse 27, when he's speaking the woes against the leaders of Israel, he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed they appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and are all and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're all full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The word hypocrite means to be two-faced. It means to be one thing here and one thing here rather than to be the same no matter where you are. And so these religious leaders, not only were they hypocrites, but they had done a really great job of making things look right on the outside, but inwardly they were dead, they were unrighteous, they were unholy. They didn't reflect the character of God at all. And so while Paul was, what he said was right, they were whitewashed walls, Jesus himself said that. There is also a commandment in Exodus chapter 28 verse 22 that says, what Paul quotes here in verse 5. He says there, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written. Anytime he says, for it is written, he's talking about, he's quoting a Bible verse. He's recognizing that though this leader is outwardly unrighteous, there's a commandment that God gave his people, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That was a commandment in Exodus. I think it was 28, 22, excuse me, 22, 28. So the reality is, is that whether a leader is respectable or not, in Paul's situation here, he's recognizing that the commandment supersedes my feelings towards the person. I'm to respect the office. And so Paul there, he repents quickly. He says, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He was very quick to respond and say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. He's kind of taking his foot out of his mouth. Now, it's interesting to me here, though. He says, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest. Now, the high priest, everybody would know who he was. So there's some conjecture. How did Paul not know? He had been there for several days. Surely he should have known by now. Well, number one, it tells me that he wasn't in the temple when Paul went there to worship. But number two, it tells me that perhaps Paul, because of his stonings, and many, even secular writers say this, Paul had eyesight problems. Many of the letters that he wrote, he had to have somebody write them for him while he dictated. And so many believe that Paul, literally his eyesight was so bad by this point that he didn't recognize the person that was addressing him. And so I, I kind of take that take. I agree with that. But nonetheless, it says, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees after that, and the other was Pharisees, he cried out in the council. He's going to use these two groups being divided against themselves as a council to kind of help out his own situation. Remember, Paul is still under scrutiny. His possibility of being put in prison 
and uh, even put, being put to death for what he's done, and even though he hasn't really done anything wrong. And so Paul's kind of grasping at straws. Perhaps he's fearful at this point that this isn't going to go well for him because neither of these groups really like Paul. But noticing that these were Pharisees and Sadducees, in verse 6 it says that he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Now instantly this would get the Pharisees on his side, right? And then he cried out, Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, this is why I'm being judged. Now, between these two groups, they don't. this is one of the biggest things they don't agree on. So he's basically taking a spiritual hand grenade and throwing it in between the two groups, just ready to watch the explosion so he won't be examined any further. And so because of that, uh, he divides them and they won't join up against him, he's hoping. So, and when he had said this, a dissension, verse 7, arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. They believe that there are. Then, verse 9, there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose, and they protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. You know, the very thing that the Sadducees are like, we don't believe this, they're like, hey, if he's heard from the Lord, then... uh we agree with them. He hasn't done any evil. Verse 10, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, he commanded the soldiers to go down to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the barracks. So my question for you is, is this the way that Paul should have handled this? Because what Paul has done is rather than trust in the Lord to defend him, He's spoken up and he's basically trying to defend himself by kind of uh, playing the blame game, throwing dust up in the air. And it's funny because sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, if my brother and I were getting in trouble or if one of us was, we would blame the other to try to get away from the main issue. Now, had Paul done anything wrong? No. So what did he need to shift the blame away to somebody else for? He didn't. I don't believe that Paul handled this in the proper way. And I'll say that because in James, where I was reading just yesterday, James chapter 3, it says this. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? James 3.13 Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But this, the wisdom that is from above, is first pure, it's peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then he says this, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Paul had the, the opportunity here to be a peacemaker, and instead he stirred up a war that was already beyond the, below the surface. 
Now, he did it for his own gain. He was trying to get out of this situation. I get that. He was afraid of the consequences if these guys agreed together. But the reality is, is whether it's expedient for our situation or not, Jesus said, blessed are those who make peace because they will be called the sons and the daughters of God. There's no confusion there. Paul didn't make peace here. He actually kind of started back up a war that had already been going on. So it's just my take and you know, for what it's worth, it seems like even though Paul was being squeezed here, maybe he was a little desperate. Don't you think that sometimes when we are being squeezed, when we are a little desperate, that's when we stir up wars? That's when we stir up dissension among the ranks? This is the high council of Jerusalem. Perhaps if they had maybe been given the opportunity to to even hear the testimony of Paul, they'd have recognized that it agreed with Jesus' testimony. It agreed with Stephen's testimony. All these that had gone before him, perhaps he would have been able to tell them. Now, most of them probably had their hearts so hardened that they wouldn't have listened, but we don't know what people are willing to listen to. We don't know when people are ready to hear. So that's just my take. But Paul, because of this, because of this stirring up of dissension, he's taken back... And these, uh, God protected him anyway, is my take. You know, Paul had been protected by God over and over and over again. And it seems to me that God once again protects him. So in verse 11, he's in the barracks. But the following night, while he's in the barracks, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, Paul testified in Jerusalem, right? But you can imagine Paul sitting in this prison and he's sitting there going, you know, I, I know God's called me to come here. I know he's called me to testify of God's grace. But every time I've spoke, it's just went completely horrible. He spoke to the Jews there in the temple. And what happened? He stirred up a riot. He walks in and he's getting there to te testify before the Sanhedrin the high council of Israel, the ones with the most power. And what does he do? He mouths the high priest against God's word. And then he's speaking before them and he causes even more division. So at this point, it's my take that he's probably feeling like he's completely failed as far as what God's given him to do in Jerusalem. He hasn't got to testify of the, the gospel at all except for the one time and it didn't even go well. Nobody responded. There wasn't a big altar call where people were saved afterwards. God, I think I failed you. I think I've completely muddled up the works. So because of that, Jesus shows up to him and he says, Be of good cheer, Paul. As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. I sent you to Jerusalem, Paul. It was my calling on your life. And just like you testified here, you still got to testify in Rome. I'm not finished with you yet. I know you feel like you've completely failed, but I've still got more work for you, so don't give up. I think it's interesting that sometimes we feel like it's all on us. We got to say just the right thing. We got to act just the right way. But it's more interesting to me that most of Jesus' disciples weren't perfect. And they were the biggest failures around, in my opinion. Seems like Peter was the biggest at failing. I mean, they're getting ready. Jesus is going to the cross. 
He's just told them that. The captors show up with Judas, and Peter gets out his knife and tries to kill the guy, one of the, the guys in the group, and what's, he doesn't even like kill the guy right. He cuts off his ear. And then Jesus looks at, what are you doing? I told you they're going to take me. You live by the sword, Peter, and you're going to die by the sword. He even takes a moment, and he, Luke's gospel tells us that he, he, he heals the, the, the guy's ear right there to undo everything that Peter had done. And I love that, because it's such a picture of how God wants to use us, not because we're perfect, but because we are such failures. So if anything good comes out of it, will, everybody in the world will know that it wasn't us, but that it was the Lord. You know, Jesus is willing to heal a guy's ear when we screw up. He's able to overcome the big blatant failures that we make. The reality is we got to just keep showing up. And that's what Paul was really good at. He was good at showing up. He was good at being filled with God's word. He, even when he screwed up, his first response when he was corrected was, oh, you're right. And he quotes from Exodus. He was ready. He was willing. He was just... Still a screw-up like the rest of us. So verse 12 continues and says, When it was day, some of the Jews banded together, and they bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, what does that say about the religious leaders? I don't know about you guys, but if I'm going like, to bound myself to an oath to wrong somebody and avenge, you know, and maybe not even kill somebody, but to do something that I know is against the Lord, to kill anybody, enemy or not, where do they go? They're so proud of this oath that they go to the religious leaders and say, hey, guess what? We've bound ourselves with an oath. We're not going to eat anything until we kill Paul. <laughs> what does that say about the religious leaders? They have absolutely no Jesus in them, or excuse me, no godliness at all. I don't know about you guys, but when I first came to the Lord, I didn't even want to talk to the pastor because I was afraid I might say it, you know, the wrong word or something. And, and these guys are like, no, no, let's go tell our pastor. Hey, we're going to kill somebody. We bound ourselves with an oath. <laughs> Just tells you a lot about the religious state of Judea, at the, or Jerusalem even, at that time. And so they bound themselves with the oath. By the way, if you get to bound, bind yourself with an oath that you will not eat until you get somebody back, I'm going to say that you might have overreacted. Even, no matter what they've done, I'm going to say you might have overreacted. But sometimes we do that, right? We're so ate up with what somebody said, with what somebody did, that we can't sleep. We, we're not even hungry. If you ever get to that spot, let it be a red flag. Perhaps it's time to forgive them, even if they're not asking for forgiveness, so that we can set ourselves free because we're really the ones that's the prisoner there. And so these men have bound themselves with an oath. They're apparently not happy with Paul. They want him put to death. Verse 15, Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, so as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we, we're ready to kill him before he even comes near. So they're laying a trap for Paul. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, 
And then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him, he brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him. He asked me to bring this young man to you and he has something to say. So then the commander took him by the hand. He went aside and he asked privately, what is that? What is it that you have to tell me? And so he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. In other words, for further questioning, verse 21, but do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will not, neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are, they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart, and he commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So Paul, in this trial we first read about today, is trying to defend himself because he knows, or he feels like it's God's will for him to testify all the way to Rome. Now it is God's will. Jesus reveals it to him there in the prison in verse 11. But what Jesus is showing him is he's saying, hey, you're, just like you testified to me here in Jerusalem, I'm going to be the one to take care of you. I'm going to make sure that nobody gets you and that you fulfill your calling. You don't have to be crafty. You don't have to come up with a plan. My plan will be fulfilled. And so every time that Jesus gives us a promise, he confirms it by following through. And we see it here where when Paul has a death threat against him, he's got 40 men conspiring to kill him and even making plans with the religious leaders. And then he's going to make plans with this garrison leader, who's going to the centurion, who's going to bring him through. And basically he's going to be offed mob style. What's God do? God does something extraordinarily ordinary. He's going to use a relative of Paul himself. This guy that we know nothing about other than he shows up out of nowhere in verse 16, just so happens to be there listening while some of these people are conspiring. Paul's sister's son. He heard about the ambush. He knows Paul, cares about him. And he goes and tells somebody that can do something about it. Some people ask sometimes, why doesn't Jesus always use miracles? Well, why would God need to use a miracle when he can use something ordinary? You know, we're oftentimes looking for the miraculous, and sometimes God just wants to use the ordinary. You know, we look for the miraculous. Jesus came in human flesh. God made him be born through the seed of the woman, through a virgin Mary, and brought him through what we would maybe even consider an ordinary way, aside from the whole, you know, immaculate conception thing. That's not ordinary at all, right? But why didn't he just like put a megaphone on the moon and say, Jesus is my son, hear him and obey him and believe in him and you will be saved. That'd be miraculous, right? That doesn't happen. But no, he sends his son through natural means. In a way, in fact, that most of the world missed it. Most of the world missed the birth of Jesus because they were expecting something crazy and miraculous. Now, it was miraculous. I don't want to bring that down at all. But the reality is that sometimes God wants to use ordinary you and I who hear something or see something 
or God gives us a word, and this is what he does here. He uses this relative of Paul to save his life. And so because of that, this commander receives this message, and verse 23 says, he called for two centurions, two, a centurion is a leader of a hundred soldiers, century means a hundred, centurion is a leader over a hundred, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. So he wrote a letter to the governor. So he's not only going to send him, but he's going to write a letter explaining, this is why I'm sending you this prisoner. But I love this because he sends them not only with 200 soldiers, but 70 horsemen, so the cavalry, and 200 spearmen. Now many people are like, well, this is just one guy. Why can't they just send him with the cavalry and, and you know, be smart about it? Why are they moving all these soldiers? Well, historically speaking, many have surmised that they already were going to be moving this troop anyway, so they moved him at a different time. And they were like, hey, we can kill two birds with one stone. We can just send Paul with them, and he'll basically be guarded the whole way. I don't know about you guys, but when I see some of the military movements that get made, you know, the tanks and all the trucks and the Humvees, I don't know about you guys, but that's like, there's no better way to travel than that. You don't have to worry about your safety. I mean, you got a bunch of armed military guys that are trained to kill. That's the way I'd want to travel. So Paul, basically, not only does he get sent to Felix to move to the next appeal, but he also gets an escort, a military escort. Now, let me ask you, who gets military escorts? The president. Paul's not the president. He's not a governor. But he's a king's servant. And God takes care of his, and he sends him in the safest way you can travel. I love this. God is not only telling Paul, hey, I'm going to take care of you, but he is taking care of him. So we'll finish with this letter. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, he says, greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews, was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Of course, he leaves out that whole part where they were about to beat him and scourge him, but that's what happens, right? And when I wanted to know the reason why they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him, deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. I love that. Farewell. And I'm done. So, he writes this letter, explains why he's sending this man, but really there's still no charges against Paul. But what I want you to see, the overarching theme of today's passage, more than anything, is that the whole beginning of this chapter is Paul feeling like he totally screwed up, like he ruined the chances to do what God had given him to do. And the whole second half of the chapter that we've read thus far is Jesus showing him, hey, my work is not contingent on you being perfect. It's contingent upon me working through your life, taking care of you along the way. We don't have to take care of God. He's the one taking care of us. 
And if He wants to use us to speak into someone's life or to be a witness for Him or even just to bless someone, it's not contingent on you and I doing it perfectly. And I need that encouragement. I don't know about you guys. I feel like more times than not, when God wants to use me, I fail Him more than I do well. So I guess the reminder, hopefully for you all this morning, is if you feel like God's given you something to do and you're completely failing at it, remember that He's going to be the one that's going to complete it. He alone is faithful. And when we are faithless, He is faithful still. It doesn't stop Him from being faithful. So just start fresh today. Start fresh this coming year. If God's laid something on your heart and you feel like you've just been putting it off and other things have gotten in the way, don't be discouraged by that. Repent if you need to repent. But start over. Say, Lord, I I was ready to be used by you and I totally dropped the ball. You know what I think the message from him is going to be? Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I'm still with you. I'm standing by you. One translation in verse 11 actually says, I'm standing with you, Paul. And this for Paul is his darkest hour. And he says, oh good, because <laughs> I felt alone. So, Father, thank you so much um, that your presence in our life is not dependent on our perfection or our own righteousness. I believe when Paul says, I've I've been living in good conscience before God until this day. It wasn't because he was able to say, hey, I've been perfect, but he was just confessing that my righteousness comes from a perfect sacrifice from Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, uh, thank you that our, your love for me is not dependent upon uh, my uh, performance, but it's dependent upon my just trusting in you. And Lord, if there's anything I could say, Lord, it's just that, I desire that I and all these here would spend this coming year learning to get better at trusting you. Lord, help us to get really good at being obedient. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to be good, really good at repenting when we mess up. Thank you so much for this passage showing us even that Paul the Apostle needed grace. Father, um, this work of salvation you've started in our lives, you're going to be faithful to complete it. You started it with grace. Uh, may it continue with grace. May we not try to earn it. And at the same time, Lord, help us just to bask in what you've done. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you are God with us. And we just pray that as this new year starts, Lord, give us a fresh start. Give us direction. Remind us of the purposes you've laid on our hearts. And help us to just be obedient, to do the steps that we know how to do. And to trust you for the rest. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.